This is um, going to be not only our sermon, but also a lengthy communion meditation. The, the Passover we've been looking at for a few weeks now, the announcement of it, we've been anticipating it as we go through the, the plagues, the signs of judgment. And now we're here at the actual um, fulfillment or execution of the the tenth plague. So please follow along as I read in Exodus 12, starting in verse 29. At midnight, Yahweh struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve Yahweh as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had so, had also done as Moses had told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And Yahweh had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people lived in Israel, excuse me, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of Yahweh went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by Yahweh to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to Yahweh by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Gracious Father, we come to a passage we, we know is not an easy passage, a very um, strange one in which there is great joyful deliverance, but yet a very somber mood. We ask that you would help speaker and listener alike draw nearer to Christ because he is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He he has that Passover lamb who was not spared so that we would be spared. Grant us life and refresh our hearts in Christ this morning. Amen. So we have been heading this direction for a while now, since chapter 7 about that God will bring both judgment upon Egypt 
for their cruel treatment of Israel, and he will bring salvation for Israel since they had no chance to bring salvation to themselves stuck under Pharaoh's tyrannical hand. We've seen this throughout several weeks now. Uh, Yahweh is bringing judgment upon Egypt to do two things with one act. The one act of the, the plagues, the judgments, these signs, it is to, to judge Egypt justly, and it is to deliver Israel joyfully. Yet the mood is not a mood of happiness and joy and celebration. It's described from verse 29 to verse 42 as a night. And it's just more than a night. It is surely taking place during the night time. But it is truly a night. It is a dark, dark time. Pharaoh has been put forth in this book so far as a cruel, cruel tyrant. Despot who is killing Hebrew baby boys, enslaving Egypt, uh, Israel, um, ordering them to make bricks and make life hard on themselves, on, on Israel. He is a cruel, cruel enemy. And even though Yahweh has been humbling Pharaoh and going after Pharaoh, Pharaoh actually isn't the point in this passage, nor has he been the point in any of the other passages. All of these, and especially chapter 12 in this short section that I read, is about our redemption in the Lord. It is about your redemption in Christ. You didn't live during this time. Most of us have never lived under a person like Pharaoh. But nevertheless, this is about being freed from a tyrannical enemy. And the Pharaoh is really the first in scriptures to fulfill that role. Others would fulfill that role as well. Nebuchadnezzar, Artaxerxes, kings of Moabites, Philistines, Midianites. Even Israel's own kings would fulfill that role of an adversary. There have always been adversaries. But Pharaoh and Artaxerxes and the group, they're always showing us the chief adversary, the chief enemy for God's people. It's not a human enemy, but Satan himself, the devil, the adversary, the accuser of the brethren. And when we look at this passage, we see God bringing judgment upon the adversary powerfully and, and taking the adversaries captives and liberating them out from a land, as we described it last week, as a leavened land, a wicked land, a land of malice. So as we look at this, we're doing a couple things. One, we're looking at our salvation in Christ. And two, we're also seeing this is how the Bible portrays God's people. It's kind of a lesson just on hermeneutics, the, the art and science of Bible interpretation. 
that as Israel was led out of their captivity and slavery, so we are led out of our slavery to sin by a powerful hand of Yahweh. The Passover, the the 10th plague, the Passover, the Lord's table, and the cross of Christ all coalesce to show us that we have true liberty, salvation, and deliverance from our adversary. And just as this one happened at night, so was the cross. So we're going to look through this passage under three headings, a night of darkness, a night of haste, and a night of watching. First off, a night of darkness, verses 29 to 31. This would be undoubtedly the darkest night in Egypt's history. And I have to say, even studying this, we have to take these words to heart. This is the most humbling and tragic event Egypt will ever experience. It was told of them. This didn't catch them off guard. In chapter 11, Moses through, excuse me, Yahweh through Moses told Moses and he told Pharaoh. At about midnight, I'm going to come through the land. I'm going to strike down the firstborn of Pharaoh all the way to the firstborn of the handmaid slave girl. There will be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel. That's 11, verse 4 to 6. It's been announced, and now it's going to be executed. It's going to be fulfilled. The judgment came at midnight. Verse 29, just as Yahweh said it would be. We have to wonder, how did Egypt wait? How did they wait for this night? It wouldn't be the exact, the same, uh, excuse me, the following night of the announcement, because we know in earlier part of chapter 12, Israel was given four days to find their lamb. To prepare that lamb, that would be unblemished lamb, and then slaughter that lamb, put the blood on the doorpost so that the pass, the destroyer would pass over and not kill the firstborn of Israel. So we know the announcement came a few days in advance. But what was Egypt doing? What do you think Pharaoh was doing? Did it since it didn't happen the first night, did they forget? Did they get anxious? Egypt has already been functionally destroyed. Their national infrastructure has been decimated. Their idols humiliated. Cattle, crops, servants lying dead, hailstone, palm trees still lying flat. They've been decimated. So they know God's word will occur as he says it will. I wonder how they waited. Did they stay up all night? They've been told 
their firstborn would die. How would they wait? They probably even held their child in their arms, hoping against hope that it would not happen. Maybe they thought they were scot-free after a couple nights that it didn't happen. Would they routinely check on their child during the night? Well, judgment came, and Yahweh struck down the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From Pharaoh's firstborn to the firstborn captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night. Yahweh comes at midnight. Pharaoh rises up that very night. He and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt. I think we can just picture, if we force ourselves to this scene, they know it's coming. They know the destroyer is coming. It's inevitable. The destroyer will come. He came. And I, just reading between the lines here, throughout the land of Egypt, there are Egyptian homes, even palace for the pharaoh. And at some point, someone was the first one to see their child dead. And undoubtedly, they wept. And then undoubtedly, that would wake up someone else who was fearful of the very same thing. And they would see theirs dead. And that would wake up another. And on and on and on and on and on and went throughout the entire land of Egypt so that there was a great cry in Egypt, for there wasn't a house where someone wasn't dead. Great cry. Finally, Pharaoh's heart has been humbled. It's been humbled in the past. The flies the locusts, the hail. Various things have humbled Pharaoh so that he understands, okay, I'm out of my league. And he, he asks Moses to intercede for him. Moses intercedes, and immediately that plague stops. Right when Moses intercedes, the plague stops. The frogs, the locusts, the hail, immediately it stops. And what would Pharaoh do when it stops? He would harden his heart again. But when he faced those previously threat, those previous threats, virtually all of those things are replaceable. So he humbled Sobek. Or he humbled Osiris or various Egyptian gods. He can forget about that for a moment and just say, well, he didn't actually humble them. I can build that statue back up again. When, he, when God crushed 
the land through hail. Crops can be grown. They can be traded for. Even servants were replaceable by trade and and slavery. The cattle that died from the pestilence or from the hail, that could be traded for, that could be replaced, but he couldn't replace a son. Nobody in Egypt could have replaced this judgment. Nobody. And we have learned Yahweh was not swift to do this. He was not quick to kill the Egyptians, but he gave them other plagues that were less, way, way less severe. But Pharaoh kept hard in his heart. Well, now it has come. And Yahweh does what he said he would do. He would bring upon Pharaoh all the plagues to his heart. If you remember that in a couple chapters ago. Right before the hail plague, I will send all my plagues on you, your heart. And he was now speaking to the heart of Pharaoh. Finally, Pharaoh's heart has been humbled. And this is a night. This is a true night. It's not just the fact that there is no sun out. The moon is out. This is a night. This is a dark, dark time. The judgment and psychological damage done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians would be felt for generations. Night in scripture isn't just about not daytime. Job says, the night racks my bones and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. I am weary with my moaning every night. I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. The night in scripture is a night of gloom. It's not just about no sunlight. It's about gloom, tragedy, vulnerability, isolation, anger, fear. What Israel, what Egypt experienced was God's judgment that night. And it was a dark night. The judgment was that they were cut off from their child. They were cut off from their firstborn. Which I think this text, along with others, when you actually start studying what will eternal judgment be, it actually sounds more psychological than physical. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, anger, fear, sorrow, tragedy. The Egyptian parents were cut off from their children and they were cut off from God. The severing of the child and parent relationship has been the, the last straw of what God has been doing to Egypt in a decreation. He's been creating darkness out of nowhere. Remember that sign? Darkness. There was no sunlight, no candlelight, no moonlight, no starlight. They sat where they were when the darkness hit and they didn't move from their place. 
Insects were on the throne, not Pharaoh. The whole land was devolving into a pre-creative place where it wasn't naturally normal. It was unnatural, the created order going in reverse. And here it continues, the created order going in reverse from parents separated from their child, their firstborn child, some of whom may have been adults, some of them may have been young. We don't know. But they were cut off. That's the judgment. That's the judgment. That's the judgment for everybody outside of Christ. And it is the judgment that the firstborn of God bore that we would not be cut off. 1,500 years approximately, on the very night, 1,500 years later, on the very night, Christ would be cut off from the Father. He would be the Lamb, Passover Lamb, slain, sparing God's people, and He would be cut off, that those who were far would be brought near to God. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? That's, that's your Lord. That's Christ. Cut off. So you would not be cut off. Israel, as we saw last week, they had no inherent righteousness which would keep them from receiving the striking of their firstborn. If they had some inherent purity or righteousness, in fact, they wouldn't need to kill a lamb in place of their firstborn. But their firstborn would have died. But instead of their firstborn dying, the lamb died in the place of the firstborn. But there's no place of the firstborn of the Son of God. He dies. He's cut off so that we don't face judgment. I'm sure there are some of us in here who have understood the incredible tragedy of losing a child. That's not the judgment. The judgment is being cut off from God. Severed from the life of God. And Christ doing that willfully, joyfully even. So here's a night of terror, a night of darkness. After this happens, we see this night of haste, a night of urgency, right when Pharaoh rises up in the middle of the night. Verse 31, Pharaoh, he summoned Moses and Aaron by night, the very night that the Lord came and struck the firstborn in the land of Egypt, the very night that Pharaoh rose up in the night, he summons Moses. This has to be within hours, within hours of the tragedy. It says to Moses and Aaron, 
what they've been asking to have for weeks, maybe months. We don't know how long the plagues have happened. There's no indication of how long, hap- how long time goes in between them. But for weeks, maybe months, God is saying, let my people go that may serve me in the wilderness. Let my people go that they may serve me. Let my people go. And now he says in four different ways, up, go out, go, and be gone. Pharaoh wants nothing to do with this anymore. Even the Egyptians say, we're all going to be dead. Get these people out of here. Ironically, the Egyptians, uh, excuse me, Pharaoh says this, and then he says with, with this strange departing greeting, and bless me also. There's a, a couple of ways to look at this. Some, some say, oh, he has the audacity to say, and bless me because I'm doing you a favor in letting you go. I think that's off the mark. I'm no Old Testament scholar, the one who said that is, but I think that's off the mark. I think what he is saying is, be favorable to me as well. And I think for a short while, before he actually turns and then chases Israel towards the Red Sea, he is actually contrite just for a minute to say, and as you leave, Bless me in a way that no further damage would come to me. The God that is favorable to you, may he be favorable to me. And now the roles have flipped. You have this hodgepodge, ragtag group of slaves, Israelites, under slavery, under the cruel slavery of Egypt, They've been the ones persecuted, oppressed, victims. Pharaoh has been the one high up, exalted, issuing orders and edicts on how to treat Israel. And now, the reversed. The king of the power, the most powerful kingdom of the time there is now begging for help. He now gets it. He's begging Bless me also and God's people. As we saw this a while ago, you can see this in Isaiah 60 and other passages. They are exalted. And the ones who persecuted God's people are now low. And God's people who were low are now brought high. In Mary's, this, we see this all over scripture, this, this polarizing idea Mary says in her Magnificat, God has brought down the might from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. And Hebrews 7 says, it is true that the superior blesses the inferior. And we have this, bless me also. Pharaoh, I think, finally gets it just for a minute. So here's, here it is. Like, this is what we've been waiting for. Israel's, like, grand exodus, you know? They got to be happy. They got to be 
just exploding with joy, no more slavery, no more cruelty, no more infanticide, no more any of that deadly, nasty adversary hanging over them, no more making bricks, no more working. But notice, they are more evicted than they are delivered. The Egyptians, verse 33, were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. This is a salvation event, yet with a very, very strange mood. There's no pomp and circumstance and fanfare. There's no trumpets blaring. There's no none of that. They're leaving. Deliver. They get the deliverance, but... There's no singing. There's no stated joy. They probably hear the cries of Egypt in the background. It's a strange night. They were driven out. And as it says in verse 39, thrust out. Yes, God is delivering them, but he is causing their deliverance to happen in a way in which they are evicted. They are kicked out. Egypt doesn't want them anymore. They're being shooed off like an unwelcome rodent in the middle of the night. Get get out of here. We do not want you here any longer. We shall all be dead. They think, if, if you stay here one last minute, one more minute, we don't know what's going to happen to us. So they drove him out. One, um, one commentator describes this night as a phantasmagoria of surrealistic hurry and departure. It is a strange, f- frantic, frenetic, crazy night. The very night that Yahweh strikes down the firstborn. There's a great cry in Egypt. The very night, they're leaving under the cover of darkness, told to get out. They got their deliverance, but where are they going? And at night, no less. The desert? This is a deliverance, but it is a strange, strange deliverance. However, God does provide for them because they had asked for silver and gold and for clothing, and the Egyptians gave it. I think it's fairly simple to see how that happened. Get Fine, you take whatever you want. Get out of here. We, don't, we understand our lives are more important than silver, gold, or clothing. Under the judgment of God, they understand that none of those possessions matter. Just leave. <laughs> When the believer comes to Christ, the world says the same. We don't want you. Get out of here. You're weird. You worship on Sundays. You do all these weird things. We're going to say that you're a cannibal because you eat the Lord's body and bread or body and blood. The world does not want the Christian. Just as surely as Israel was evicted from Egypt, so the Christian, having come to Christ, is really cast out of the world, being crucified to the world, and the world crucified to him. 
We put ourselves in Egypt's, excuse me, in Israel's sandals. <laughs> a mix of emotions. Joy, finally deliverance. But mourning is going on. They're free to leave Egypt, but where are they going to go? Israel had built homes there. They pastured flocks there. They had flocks and herds, and they were multiplying. It was a psychologically frenetic night for everybody, especially Egypt, but also Israel. So they were cast out from their home. No, they were slaves there, but that was their home for 400 years. You would get used to living in some place for 400 years. The future was bound to be better, but it wasn't certain. It was bound to be better than slavery, but it was very uncertain. I like backpacking, but I don't backpack at night. <laughs> You're going to be crazy. Well, hopefully none of you do that. <laughs> but they're leaving. Let's say the Lord strikes the firstborn down at midnight. They're, they're getting ready around 2 o'clock. And they're leaving. And they're, they're, they're being shooed off. And they're just like, you know, they ate their Passover meal, ready to go in haste. And they have their walking stick. And they're just starting to go. Where are they going? I don't know. Where are we going to go? Let's just start walking. That's the life of a Christian. I've come to Christ. What do I do now? I don't know. I've lived so long in the world. I don't know what anything else is like. Israel lived here for 430 years. They don't know what the kingdom of light is like. <laughs> All they know is darkness. They have freedom, but they don't know what freedom's like. <laughs> And they're going to travel. They don't know this yet, but they're going to be traveling gypsies, sojourners for 40 years in a desert. We've probably all seen satellite images of that area. It's not exactly, um, you know, Cody. <laughs> it's pretty desolate. So they're cast off. They have their deliverance, but emotionally, it's strange for them too. And that's how it is for the believer. We're, we're cast off, we're, we're delivered, but where are we going? You're, you, ever, you come to Christ and you ever think about that? Like, well, I, I'm saved now, but what, what do I do? Do I quit my job? Do I divorce my spouse? Do I move? What do I do? You know? Well, for the road ahead of us, the Lord promises us that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. The Christian coming to Christ, or the sinner coming to Christ, becoming a Christian, no doubt has a, a strange pilgrimage ahead an uncertain future in some respects, but very certain another. You know the Lord will finish the work he began in you the day of Christ Jesus. But what am I supposed to walk like? How am I supposed to live? 
Well, Second Peter 1.3 does remind us that he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. What you have in, just take, just take two things, the word of God and the spirit of God. And they go hand in hand as we learned in Thessalonians. They are all you need that pertain to life and godliness. Pilgriming with God is strange. You don't know what's going to happen. Walking with God is a walk of faith because you just don't know exactly what's going to happen. But we do know that he gives us possessions just like he did Israel. He gives us possessions, not silver, gold, or clothes, his word. You know, there's that, there's that account in the Pilgrim's Progress where Pilgrim is locked up in Downing Castle. He's in the cage and he realizes, what am I doing here? I've had the key in my breast pocket the whole time. Click, I'm out of here. I'm gone. The key being symbolic for the word of God, the promises of God, actually. That's what you have. Every believer has the promises of God to ward off enemies that come after you with chariots later on, because that'll happen, or doubting, or fear, dread, anxiety, terror, the enemy, flaming missiles, and so forth. We have that. So it's been a night of darkness. It is a night of haste. And also it is a night of watching. It is a night of watching. When Israel left Goshen, Ramses is in Goshen, the, the lower delta of the Nile. As it fans out there, Ramses is there, fertile, fertile plain. And they leave Ramses and they, leave, and they go to Sukkoth. About 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. This verse has given me fits last week. Not because I don't deny, not because I think God can't take care of 600,000 men on foot, but because of what the Bible says about the group that left Egypt. We know one thing. The ESV, which is my translation of choice for now, when it says besides women and children is a interpretation, not a direct translation. The NAS, I think, has it better. Besides children. There's no women in the, there's no, the, the word women is not there in the Hebrew. It's inserted because men on foot is a phrase for military arranged men. And women would not be in the military. If that is offensive, that's what the Bible says. So, 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. If you add up the women and the children, some say two to three million Israelites. Two to three million Israelites. It could be a smaller number because it could be the, the men and women being the 600,000. What we know is this. It's not about the number necessarily. It's about what kind of people left. When Jacob, 430 years earlier, went down to Egypt, 
He went down with just his family, 70 people. So they go down to Egypt, and they're there, 70 people. That's a big family. Probably more, with, more than just 70, given family servants and all that. But now, they're not a family. I mean, they are a family, but they're not a family. They're described in military terms. They're described as men on foot. And in verse 41, they're described as the hosts of Yahweh. Now, men on foot, no doubt about it. Hosts, often used in a military um, metaphor. It could just refer to a large group. I think given the context here, God is calling his slaves that he just purchased his host, his army. And so you have these 600,000 regiment, that's men on foot, and then the host of the Lord. They go down as a family, 70 people. They could have been snuffed out like that. But the word of the Lord is with them. They multiply and abundantly multiply and multiply some more so that at the beginning of chapter 1 in Exodus, I'm, I'm sure you remember this from weeks ago. It says, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And a new king arose and they said, hey, let's deal shrewdly with them because they're too mighty and they're too many for us. They go down as a family, and the word of God, which was told to Abraham, I will bless you, I will make you a nation, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, <coughs> Pharaoh. He has caused his word to be true in causing them to multiply and be fruitful in suffering, in exile, in slavery, they were blessed. They were blessed in slavery. I think most of the time we think, I'm having a hard time. What blessing might come out of this, right? Israel's experience, not to mention that of the New Testament church and many other examples, is the blessing is in the slavery, is in the exile. The word of God never departed. He pronounced, God pronounced a blessing upon Abraham, and that word was coming true even though they were being slaughtered. Hebrew boys cast into the Nile. Slavery, cruel treatment. So this, six, this, this group of 600,000 men on foot, besides children, I'll just say that, that. I'll say this, if you want to do a fun word study, thousand doesn't always mean thousand. <laughs> um, there's a reason why some would take this number to be smaller. 
And that is because later on, Israel described, is described as the smallest and the fewest of the nations inhabiting the land of Canaan. And since there are seven tribes in Canaan, if this 600,000 men approximately 2 million, there's no archaeological evidence at all whatsoever that there was more than 14 million in Canaan. This is why I was struggling with this until someone just told me, stop preaching the numbers, just preach the meaning. <laughs> we have a multitude. Revelation would describe it as myriads upon myriads of God's people who are delivered. Men, women, and children. And a mixed multitude goes up with them. Who's the mixed multitude? One, no doubt, Egyptian or other uh, ethnicities, which Israelite men married while they were there for 400 years. Polygamy was normal. That was going to happen. So there's probably interracial marriages. There's probably other national uh, nationalities there in slavery that see Yahweh greater than Pharaoh. And there's probably also just Egyptians saying, I see a better future with Yahweh in the desert than my land here with Pharaoh, which has now been utterly destroyed. So a mixed multitude goes up with them. We don't know how big they are. And then very much livestock of flocks and herds, probably in the millions of sheep and goats and cattle and all that stuff. And as they're going, they're baking 11 cakes. And it says that the time, of the, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, the very day not being probably 430 years to the exact date, but on the very day of that night, on that very day, the night of all this terror, the night of all this celebration, well, salvation, on that very night, that very day, the hosts of Yahweh went up from the land of Egypt, and it was a night of watching by Yahweh. Literally, we could just paraphrase this to say it was a vigil by Yahweh. It was a night of solemn observance by Yahweh to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So... This same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. So for generations, Israel would keep this night, this Passover, 10th plague, beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread night. And they would have their own vigil commemorating that Yahweh has been watching over them as they left their homes and their slavery and begun a new life following the Lord. He was watching, watching. That's not a term used by Moses to say that the Lord was watching this unfold, not sure of what would happen or watching this unfold, gathering information about it all. No, the night of watching is a shepherding watching. It is a care. 
This is a night of care by Yahweh. He's carefully watching over his sheep as he brings them out of the land of Egypt. Our worst and our best moments, God is watching his people, watching over like a good shepherd of our souls. Our best moments and our worst moments. We have a very good illustration of this in the New Testament. Again, about 1,500 years later, Jesus sits down and he has a Passover meal with his disciples. He tells them he's going to be betrayed. Yet in love, knowing the betrayal, he communicates to his disciples the bread and the wine. He institutes the new Passover, the Lord's table. And after this institution of the Passover, the new Passover, he goes out, takes his disciples to the Mount of Olives. And at the Mount of Olives, they sing a hymn. And there at the Mount of Olives, Jesus says, you will all fall away. For it is written, quote, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Well, we know who is the first to speak in such situations. Peter opens his mouth. Even though they will all fall away, I will not. Oh, Peter, Peter, Peter. After this scene, they go to the garden. Jesus goes off to pray multiple times. And every time he goes off to pray and stops and comes back, he sees the disciples sleeping. And he says, could you not keep watch for one hour? He goes away, comes back. They're, they're sleeping again. Right after that scene in the garden, Judas comes. It's all dark night. Judas comes with his mob. They arrest Jesus. As they arrest him, they take him off. Peter follows at a distance, kind of in the vicinity. Peter finds a group of people sitting down around a fire. A little servant girl notices Peter and says, this man was also with Jesus. No, 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 I wasn't. He denies it. A little while later, another person noticed him and said the same. Peter denied it again. After an hour, another person recognizes him and insists, he is a Galilean. But Peter responded, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The very next words. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Still watching. Always watching. Lord watches over his people. Jesus is getting harangued. And he has the sympathy, the love, and compassion to turn to Peter in the vicinity and say, Peter goes off. The Lord restores him. 
encourages him. But the Lord is always watching. You ever deny Christ? You ever compromise in your faith? You ever do great exploits for the king? He's always watching. He always has a shepherding eye on his sheep. That should really encourage us. He's always watching his people leave a land of slavery until they get to Canaan. Until they get to Canaan. He's watching over. And he will remain watching over until we're glorified. I'm going to go into the Lord's table now. There is really nothing more I want to say. We're taking the bread in the cup. There is no salvation without judgment. There is no salvation without judgment. In Egypt, judgment fell upon the firstborn. In Calvary, judgment fell upon the firstborn. God's judgment was meted out so you can have life. Life eternal. That's why we take this. We, we do not dare take this thinking, oh, I'm worthy now to take it. I had a pretty good week last week. We dare not take this thinking, oh, I'm sorry, we dare not avoid this take, thinking, I cannot take it, I'm not worthy of it. No, you, you don't want to get into an arguing match with the pr pronouncements of God. If he pronounces you as child by the blood of Christ, you're his child. We take this in faith, knowing that the actions of receiving the bread and the cup is an action of faith, saying, I am receiving Christ because he has received my judgment. And he has now become exalted, has sits at the right hand of the Father, and he rules over all, and he's given us these very rituals to participate in for our life. Nancy, if you want to come up, and Tim and Dave.